Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Samuel 3, and Brock is going to come and read uh, the entire chapter for us. So, 1 Samuel chapter 3, please. The Lord calls Samuel. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house, from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever, for the iniquity, for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrificing or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Right, thank you, Brock. And we once again remember together on this Lord's Day that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's ask his help as we look at this passage together. Bow with me, please. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we just uh, once again acknowledge that you are king over all, Lord, that you 
know all things, even our, even our words before they are on our mouth, on our lips, Lord, that you, you know them completely and that you have even knit uh, each one together in our mother's womb. And so there's nothing that we can inform you about. But Lord, we, we come humbly this morning asking that you would guide us as we consider the words here in 1 Samuel 3, Lord, that this event that took place 3,000 years ago, and yet we know that it is still you that opens eyes, that speaks, Lord, and it is upon your word that we depend, Lord, not only individually, but as a church body, uh, Lord, we, we long for you to, to speak and uh, that your servant might hear and be further conformed into Christ's likeness. We pray as we consider the word, Lord, that even Christ himself would stand forth to your people, that he would be precious in our sight, and Lord, that we would see the, the vanity of all that this world uh, holds out to us. We would see the, the serious consequences that come uh, when we turn our back upon you, when we, Lord, ignore your clear instructions that uh, you are not a God who is mocked. And so I pray that we, Lord, um, just work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is you who work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And I pray that you would help uh, each one to be attentive from the youngest to the oldest, Lord, and that my words would be uh, spoken in the strength of your spirit and according to your word. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. You see it. Thank you. Well, for many of you who I'm sure have grown up hearing the Word of God, this is one of those passages that is a favorite, especially in children's books or maybe children's movies uh, that are retelling the Bible stories. I remember as a kid hearing and seeing many different variations of this account in the life of Samuel where God calls him, uh, and yet it's so good to work through the scriptures um, as God has given it because it helps us to see this in its proper context. And I know many times in a children's book, for example, you'll have this wonderful story of God calling out to Samuel and him getting up and going to Eli and being sent back until finally he uh, realizes that it's the Lord. And then the story just kind of ends. You know, they don't really want to say, well, what did God actually tell Samuel? What was the first sermon, if you will, that Samuel actually preached as a prophet of God. That is a very sobering matter and would have been a, a terrifying experience for Samuel. And yet, uh, in, in the full context here, we see what God is doing in the larger picture. And there are so many principles and, and applications for us as well as we consider the, the ways of God and his sovereign grace that comes to us that we might know him. Now, I know last week we, we have looked at the word against Eli and his house. And right from the beginning of this book, we have seen this sort of back and forth, almost like a, a tug of war, if you will. Uh, maybe some of you kids have played tug of war before. You have one person on one end pulling and someone else on the other. And you're trying to see which way it's going to go. We have this almost back and forth between um, Eli, the house of Elkanah, and uh, sorry, um, the house of Elkanah and Samuel and Hannah, and then Eli and his wicked sons on the other side. And while Samuel is growing in favor with the Lord, growing in wisdom and stature, 
Eli and his family are growing in their sin and in their offensiveness to God. And so we have this this building um, element to the story where God has brought a word against Eli. We saw last week from the man of God, this prophet that came to tell Eli that God is pronounced a sentence upon him and upon his family for the sin that they have committed. The boys of Eli, uh, now grown men, were stealing from the Lord's sacrifice. They were making a mockery of the instructions the Lord gave to the people of Israel in how to carry out the sacrifices. They were committing sexual immorality in the very tabernacle of God and blaspheming God. And Eli, instead of uh, enforcing the law of God, instead of banishing them from the people of Israel, he just continued to enable it and remained indifferent to his sons as far as actually taking action. So now we have this scene shift again to young Samuel, and we have this wonderful picture of God calling him and raising him up, establishing him as a prophet in Israel. And so we see these four progressions this morning as God moves the nation from darkness to light, from silence to the spoken word. Four progressions that I want to look at. First of all, we'll see the silence from God uh, in our passage this morning. We read that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And that is to say, this is a dark time for the 12 tribes of Israel. They have become comfortable in the land, but they have failed to drive out the pagan nations that God instructed. They failed to separate themselves as God instructed them. And even the priests of God who were supposed to, to mediate the, the, the sacrifices to God, to teach the law to the people, they themselves had become corrupt and self-indulgent, and they looked more like a bunch of gangsters than they did the priests of God in the way they treated the people of Israel. And we see this connection between the, the rarity of God's word, the rarity of visions from God, and then the immorality that results, the spiritual darkness that comes when the word of God is rare in a land, when there is infrequent vision from God. There results in greater degrees of spiritual darkness and immorality. And this has not changed since the beginning of time. Where the word of God is ignored and mocked, immorality and darkness will spread like cancer. Because we know even as the psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so if the word of God is rare then quickly man will wander off the path into destruction. Even the prophet Zechariah described his day in Zechariah 10.2, the idols speak deceit, diviners see visions that lie, they tell dreams that are false, they give comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. Time and time again, when the people of God turn their backs on the word of God, the result is greater degrees of depravity, of darkness, and of wickedness. 
Or as Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. And that's exactly what we're finding in the time here of Samuel. Infrequent word from God and visions from the Lord. And in some ways, the description of Eli that we're given seems almost to be a metaphor of the spiritual condition of him and the priests. He's, we're told that Eli, he is old, his eyesight is begun to grow dim so he could not see. He's basically blind at this point and he is lying down in his own place. And it is in the dead of night because we're told the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So it, it, the lamp was fueled to burn through the night until the morning hour. And so because the lamp is still burning, it indicates this is probably sometime in the, the early um, hours of the, of the morning before the, the light has come. What we would know is the middle of the night. And this seems to be almost a picture of the state of Israel, of Eli himself, spiritually, unable to see reality, to see light. His eyes have grown dim. His sons are spiritually blind. They, they are supposed to be leading the people of Israel, and yet they are abusing the position that God had given them. But God, being merciful, not willing that all light should be extinguished upon the earth, he reveals himself to young Samuel. And Samuel is going to be a channel through which the word of God will once again come to the people of God, where God will once again reveal himself and bring light into this dark condition. And it's also interesting to note that we're told Samuel was lying where the ark of God was. Now, of course, we don't want to read too much into the, the details here, but uh, the author obviously is specifically giving these details as part of the, the, the building of this account. And uh, it's, again, this picture that Samuel is near the ark. He is ready to receive a word from God while Eli is distant. He is blind. He is old. Now, I don't think that Samuel would have slept directly by the ark of God, probably not even in the holy place where the lamp was, possibly in a chamber that was near the ark. Uh, we're just simply not told exactly where he was sleeping in the tabernacle. As I, as I said, I don't think he would have been actually in the Holy of Holies or in the even likely the holy place. These were sacred places. Um, but this picture of Samuel near to the ark, this place that represents God's presence among his people. Samuel was, as it were, in earshot that he might hear from God. And we have the beginning of a major uh, transition and, and revival in the nation of Israel at the hand of God. So we have not only, first of all, the silence from God, the silence from God, but secondly, we see the call from God in this passage. And this is the, the famous scene that many of us have probably heard from childhood. But it's fascinating to see how this unfolds. We're told in verse 4, the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, 
here I am. For you called me. But Eli says, I did not call you. Go lay down again. So this would have been probably the middle of the night. Uh, Samuel, asleep, suddenly hears someone call his name and assumes that it must be Eli. Maybe initially not even sure if he was dreaming or awake. I'm sure you've all had that where you're kind of asleep and you think you hear something or maybe you have a child call out and you kind of sit there and you're like, did someone call me? Did I hear something? Uh, Naturally, Samuel assumes it must have been Eli. He rushes over to where Eli was sleeping and Eli tells him, no, please go back to bed. I did not call you. Uh, Something like the parent who is, you know, awakened in the middle of the night by the young child who wants a a cup of water or something. And and, and you just really want the child to go back to bed. And you're trying to communicate that as calmly, uh, but as firmly as you can. I really want to go back to sleep. Please return to your bed. And and Samuel uh, coming to Eli, it almost has that that picture. Um, But then again, God calls to Samuel, calls his name in the middle of the night. Again, Samuel rises up and rushes to Eli, assuming this must be Eli that's calling me. Who else could it be? And it's interesting here with the second call, um, because we might be tempted to ask, how is it possible that Samuel did not understand it was God calling him? He's been working in the temple for his entire life, basically. He's been wearing the ephod. He would have been exposed to the law of Moses, at least in part, we assume. He would have seen many sacrifices brought to the tabernacle. He would have heard prayers and songs. How is this young man, probably I'm guessing around 14 to 18 at this point. Again, we're kind of guessing on uh, exactly how old he is. But how is it that he did not recognize the voice of the Lord calling him? This might seem somewhat surprising to us. And thankfully, the author in verse 7 actually tells us why it is that Samuel did not understand what was going on here. In verse 7, we read, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And this is a little shocking when you really think about it. Uh, Here's a a young man, as I said, been serving all of this time, ministering before the Lord, helping in the sacrifices, no doubt putting fuel in the lamp and replacing the the showbread, uh, opening the doors of the tabernacle for the saints. How is it possible that he is going about all of this service to God and yet does not know him? And this might even be a little frightening Because in chapter 2, verse 12, we were told of the sons of Eli, they were worthless men, for they did not know the Lord. And I think this is a, a, a very important reminder for us of our greatest need, that we know God. Not just know things about God. True things, even for that matter, that is important, but that must go beyond simply an intellectual knowledge of God. There must be this intimate knowing of God, this personal experience where we encounter the living God and he is real to us. He is revealing himself to us through his word that we can say, I truly know him. Do you remember in John 17, verse 1, how Jesus defined eternal life. 
Jesus prayed in this high priestly prayer, John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is the very foundation of our eternal life, which is in God, not just having the right confession or knowing the right activities to do, but a sense in which we actually know Him, the one whom the Scriptures are revealing by the Spirit's enabling. Mark Jones said of knowing God, he said, to know, uh, or knowing Christ more specifically, to know in the Bible can very often mean to have a concern about something that involves the understanding of the mind, the movement of the will, and the application of the heart. So there is this, when we talk about knowing God, knowing Christ, knowing our, our, our Lord and Savior, yes, it must involve the mind. We must first know true things about God. We must read and, and, and read about his attributes, read about his ways, and, and in, in put that into our mind. But then from there, it must also move by the power of the Spirit the, the, the movement of our wills that we actually begin to, to long to know this God and, and that we experience his goodness and his faithfulness and his nearness and the peace of God upon our hearts, that these things become realities so that our lives actually are changed by this encounter. And there is this ongoing um, walking with God, a relationship with God. And, and we know that even in a, in a marriage, for example, that you know, initially you meet someone and you're interested in them, um, and, and so you begin to get to know them. You, you learn about their family, about their upbringing, about their interests, and you spend time with them. And in the covenant of marriage, there's a sense in which you come to know one another in an intimate sense, in this covenantal sense. But that doesn't stop on your wedding night or honeymoon, that, that is then the beginning of a lifelong process of knowing this person, seeking them out, pursuing them. And so it is with God. We come to know Him in our conversion to experience His goodness and His presence and His peace, but then there is this lifelong pursuit that we might know Him more and that we might plumb the depths of his being, and his beauty. And it is really from this that we can so easily become distracted, that we think, like maybe the Israelites, that what God really wants are the sacrifices of bulls and goats, that he just, he wants what we can offer to him, but really what we must do is come to know the Lord God. This is what begins to distinguish Samuel from the sons of Eli. A knowledge of God. And we must also guard against any notion of morality or Christianity or goodness that is divorced from truly knowing God. You know, sometimes uh, Canada Day can be something of a, a bittersweet thing because we may think back when Canada was more biblically based. We, we know as a country in many ways founded upon biblical principles 
and even the laws, our own charter of rights, reflect biblical truths in many ways. And we may wish that we could rewind back time uh, in regards to our our political situation or the, the sense of morality in this land. And yet we have to also remind ourselves that even if our government tomorrow announced that they were going to rewrite the entire laws of the land to line up with that of Scripture, and yet if they did not know God, we would be no better off in light of eternity. That there must be this primary calling of man to know God. Because if we don't know God, then we are eternally lost. That everything in the Christian life should flow from this knowledge of God. Yes, we want to be obedient to the law, but that obedience ought to flow from a love for God. And that's what we pray for even our family, as we pray for our our leaders, for Daniel Smith. We pray not only that that there would be this sense of godliness in what she is doing, but personally that she would come to know Christ, that she would repent and believe and, and experience this transformation of God that would, that would begin to transform from the inside out. Even our children, is this what we pray for them? Or would we be content if they turn out to be brilliant and make large amounts of money at a successful business? Is that enough for us? Or are we longing that they know God, that they truly have an experiential knowledge of who God is? Sometimes I read through the uh, little book of prayers, The Valley of Vision. Uh, If you've never read through it, I would encourage you to to get one. It's always so very convicting. It's just a collection of Puritan prayers that were written down. And uh, just a piece of one, for example, I just find the way they they long to know God so uh, convicting. This one part of it said, I bless thee that thou hast made me capable of knowing thee, the author of all being, of resembling thee, the perfection of all excellency, of enjoying thee, the source of all happiness. O God, attend me in every part of my arduous and trying pilgrimage. I need the same counsel, defense, comfort I found at my beginning. Let my religion be more obvious to my conscience, more perceptible to those around. While Jesus is representing me in heaven, may I reflect him on earth. While he pleads my cause, may I show forth his praise. And even the acknowledgement that it's God who makes us capable of knowing him and that we would seek that God would grow that in us. We see God continues to pursue young Samuel. He's in this state of not knowing God, but there's a key distinction from how Samuel is described from how the sons of Eli were described. You see, the sons of Eli, were told, did not know the Lord. And yet, when it comes to Samuel, we're told that he did not yet know the Lord, implying that there was a knowledge to come for this young man. And even as Luke talked about with the children, um, I always give Luke the very challenging questions, too. <laughs> not on purpose, Luke. It just happens that way. But the covenant of grace, and you think about the, the purposes of God in, in calling out a people from lost humanity. And this is true of Samuel. He, he did not know the Lord, but 
we're told he did not yet know the Lord. That God had purpose to set his mercy and kindness and grace upon this young man. And things were about to change for him. And really, as we think about the world in which we live, there really are these three categories, aren't there? There are those who do not know the Lord, and, and they will go on in their, in their rebellion and sin. There are those who know the Lord, who have come to faith through Christ, who have repented and believed and have been born again. And then there are those who do not yet know the Lord, these lost sheep of Israel who we are called to go out with the gospel to preach the good news that they might know the Lord, they might be converted. And as God continues to pursue Samuel, he a third time calls to him. And again, Samuel goes to Eli Now, in the Hebrew mind, when something happens three times in a row, you need to pay attention. You need to to, to perk up your ears because something is happening. God is is very possibly doing something. And we see that sort of the the, the triad uh, in the scriptures. And this is very much a Hebrew thing. So is this why Eli finally begins to perceive that God is doing something? Uh, No doubt he, he, he is now paying attention. Samuel comes a third time and we're told that Eli... Um, perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Suddenly Eli realizes something is going on here. Three times now Samuel has come. He is obviously hearing something. This isn't just a a dream or or just him, you know, just being uh, silly, that something's happening. And so he tells Samuel, listen, go back to bed and lie down. And if your name is called again, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so Samuel obediently goes back And then God graciously, a fourth time, calls out to young Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And God reveals himself to this young man. And when we see again this dual name that is given, it it reminds us of previous times that God has done this. Um, Even as uh, Alistair Begg pointed this out, that you think about times when God has called other servants. For example, Moses. There was this Moses, Moses in Exodus 3, 4. And uh, Jacob in Genesis 46, 2. Jacob, Jacob, God calling him, preparing him for what God is about to do. In Genesis 22, um, Abraham, Abraham, this dual calling of the name. Or I even thought of Acts 9, 4. Um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God is preparing this person for something that he is about to do. And we have this name of Samuel now spoken twice, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says what Eli had told him to say. And then we have the word that God brings to this young man. Now, there's obviously a sense in which this account is is very unique. Um, We have no other record of God revealing himself quite this way to any other individual. Samuel uh, is a very unique call of God on the one hand. And yet, on the other hand, all true Christians have experienced the revelation of God in a personal way. You have also moved from not yet knowing God to knowing God. And I think that the principles that are at work are the same, actually. You see, we are also a people born into darkness. We're unable to even seek after God, Paul says. We're unable to, to not only seek after him, but much less to find him, to, to truly know him. 
This is because of the fall of Adam, because we are born in sin. We are born in this state of, of bondage. And so unless God draws near to us, we really don't have a hope of ever coming to know him. And so through the gospel message, as the gospel goes forth, it's the spirit of God who quickens the believer, causes them to be born, that we might then have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might understand this is the voice of God calling. As Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what's happening here in Samuel's life. This young boy living in in darkness in many ways, though going through a motion of godliness, and yet God in the darkness, his voice calls out to this young boy, Samuel, Samuel, you are mine. And Paul says, for every believer, this has happened. God has said, let there be light in this darkened soul. And by the grace of God, even as we just sang, once chained in that prison of sin, the the light of God breaks into your soul and you are raised up to walk in newness of life and to perceive the God who has saved you. And I pray that we never lose the wonder of God's effectual call upon the believer, upon you. Never lose the the wonder of that, the amazement of that. And, And even as we pray for our children, we pray for the lost around us, we're really ultimately praying, God, would you do the same? Would you speak into the darkness and bring life? This is not something that I can do. This is not something that my children can do. This is not something that my neighbor can do. All I can do is simply give the the message, proclaim the the word, which is the power of God unto salvation. And so in Samuel's call here, I see in many ways the call of every Christian to be brought near to God that we might know him and know his word. And so we move then from the call of God to the word from God that he gives to Samuel. And this is, as I said many times, where the children's story kind of comes to an end. Uh, we're just going to call it a, a day there, and, and we'll just say what a nice, lovely story. And yet, as we consider the word that God gives to this young man, it would have been, no doubt, very terrifying and even potentially devastating on many levels. For God brings Samuel up to speed as to all that's happened, the word that he's brought against Eli. Did Eli ever talk to Samuel about this? I'm going to guess probably not. I'm guessing he probably didn't initiate this conversation with Samuel. You know, like, hey, Samuel, just so you know that that there's been a word pronounced against me and my sons and will probably be destroyed at any given moment. Uh, But, you know, don't worry about it. You just continue on doing what you're doing. I don't think Eli would have really wanted to, to bring that up. And so Samuel, very likely completely oblivious to all that had gone on before, to the words of the prophet, to Eli. And so God comes and he tells Samuel what is about to happen. And, and he says it's something that will cause the two ears of everyone who hears it to tingle. Everyone will be paying attention to this. And we see this today in, in you know, some story comes across the news and everyone's talking about it, whether it's you know, significant in the grand scheme of things or, or not. Uh, people are paying attention. 
Um, and, and God's saying this will be this, this sort of thing that everybody hears about, everybody's talking about. And he says, there's coming a day when the sentence that I passed against Eli and his house will be executed. And he tells Samuel what we know from the previous passage from the prophet, that he's about to punish his house forever because his sons were blaspheming God and, Sam, and Eli did not restrain him. So we have the, the sin of the sons as blaspheming God and Eli's sin as that of enabling them, not rebuking them, not upholding the law as God had given. And so Eli shares in their guilt. And therefore God says, the house of Eli, that the iniquity um, shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. A devastating word to the house of Eli. And Samuel, no doubt, filled with a sense of awe on the one hand that he is now meets the God of Israel, the, the God who created all things, the God who he has heard delivered the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, the God who spoke to Moses on the mountain is now speaking to Samuel. He knows him, he has met him, he's encountered him, and yet he's also given this very devastating word of what's about to happen to Eli, someone who's probably like a second father to Samuel, even in the way Eli speaks to him as my son. They, they seem to have a very close relationship. And yet he's given this devastating word. And we think about the seriousness again for a moment. I know we looked at this last week. But God sums up the sin of Hophni and Phinehas as the blaspheming of God. And Eli's as not restraining him. And the implication of this particular sin is there is no atonement available. Nothing. No way for them to be forgiven. This is, this is a terrifying condition. And actually in Numbers 15.30, we read uh, a very, uh, regarding this condition or this consequence, if you were, for this type of sin, this sin of blasphemy, or what we could say, well, I'll read Numbers 15, uh, 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So this is something God had warned about. There is a, a high-handed sin that comes against the Lord himself in a mocking, arrogant sort of way. And those who commit such sins, God says they shall be cut off utterly and their iniquity shall be on them. There remains no atonement for them. And this is what should have happened to Hophni and Phinehas. They should have been cut off from the priesthood, removed from the people of Israel, probably guilty of capital punishment. And yet Eli was unwilling to uphold the law. And so God is going to execute judgment. And there is no forgiveness. And we know even in the New Testament, there is, Jesus talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's a very uh, mysterious subject for us, one that we don't maybe often want to think about. 
But Jesus said in Mark 3.28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. For they they accuse Jesus of essentially being demon-possessed, and Jesus warns them that a sort of high-handed sin like that will result in in an inability to even repent and and, and no forgiveness available. We even think about Acts 5 where Ananias and Sapphira lie not only to the apostles, but Peter says they lie to the Holy Spirit about the gift that they brought and it cost them their lives in a moment. And I know we could go way off track here in looking at what exactly is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Is this something that is is still relevant today? I think a quick helpful definition is is simply a a great offense against God himself without any repentance or remorse. When someone is able to, to, to lift their hand against God himself with zero repentance, zero remorse in their heart, God can and will give such a person over to their sin and allow them to be hardened into such a state that they cannot and will not repent. And I couldn't help but think of uh, John Bunyan's example in in, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And in fact, John Bunyan, for years, wrestled with the the, uh, fear that he had himself committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he thought he could not ever be saved. And he was plagued for years with the thought that he will surely be condemned. And finally found relief uh, through the word of God and and the, the, the... the call of Christ to come to him and to find forgiveness. But in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, he illustrates, I think, this very well with the man in the iron cage as Christian is at the interpreter's house and he's showing these different pictures to represent something of of the world in which we live. Um, So Christian looks at this man in the iron cage and he says, what are you? And the man answered, I am what I, what, um, I am what I was, sorry, I am what I was not once. Christian said, what were you once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor, both in my own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and then had then even joy at the thought that I should get there. Christian says, well, but what are you now? And the man says, I am now a man of despair and am shut up in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. Christian asks, but how did you come into this condition? And the man says, I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil, and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger, and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. And then Christian said to the interpreter, But is there no hopes for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. Christian then said, Is there no hope, but you must keep in the iron cage of despair? The man says, No, none at all. Why? The son of the blessed is very pitiful. The man says, I have crucified him to myself afresh. 
I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood an unholy thing. I have done despite um, to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises. And there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour me as an adversary. And Christian asks, for what did you bring yourself into this condition? And the man says, for the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world, in the enjoyment of which I did them promise myself much delight, but now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw me like a burning worm. Christian asks, but can you now turn and repent? Man says, God has denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe, yea, himself has shut me up in this iron cage, nor can all the men in the world let me out. O eternity, eternity, how shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? An interpreter said, then uh, let this man's misery be remembered by you and be an everlasting caution to you. And Christian said, This is fearful. God help me to watch and be sober and to pray that I may shun the cause of this man's misery. And that is very much a picture of Hophni and Phinehas shut up in the iron cage of their own rebellion, their own sinfulness, their own mockery of God, their own blaspheming of his name, where now there is no repentance left, but only the promise of swift and coming judgment. And God lays all of this upon young Samuel. And so we have not only then the word, but finally we'll close with the prophet of God. Samuel emerges from that night as a prophet of God. You see, we're told in verse 15 that he lay there until morning and then opened the doors, as no doubt was part of his job to open up the doors of the tabernacle, the house of the Lord, And we're not told that Samuel went back to sleep. You could just imagine lying there in your bed, your mind racing with all that had just happened. I don't think he would have had any other sleep that night. And probably wondering how he could get through the day without talking to Eli. He he no doubt had no desire to, to go and quickly tell Eli what was about to come upon him. So Eli seeks out Samuel, and I, know, I think Eli knows very well what is probably about to happen. Because he warns Samuel that may God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So if you don't tell me, Samuel, may God do all that he said to you. Uh, indicating, I think, that Eli has a suspicion that what Samuel knows is regarding the house of Eli. And Samuel now must decide. Is he going to be a faithful prophet of God? Or is he going to alter the message? Is he going to to water it down, to, to soften the edges? Or maybe he could just tell Eli some of the some of the prophecies, some of the word from God, and then leave out the scary parts, leave out the, the, the really uh, weighty parts, try to make it a little happier word from God. Which way is Samuel going to go? By the grace of God, we see Samuel delivers the word of God faithfully to Eli as God had given it. We're told that he told him everything 
that God said. He hid nothing from him. And this is really the key to not only the prophet, but the faithful Christian. We all have a similar choice, don't we? I mean, it's not quite the same. We know that Hebrews 1 tells us in former times, God spoke through the prophets and visions and dreams and even his voice audibly at times. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And we now hear from the son through the word of Christ as the spirit of Christ illuminates it to us. But as we are given the word, we have a decision to make, as Samuel did. Will we hold fast to the whole counsel of God? Will we speak the whole counsel of God? Or will we try to change it, to alter it, to make it more digestible to a a godless generation? Will we try to make it more acceptable so we ourselves aren't disliked? Or will we simply proclaim the word of God as he is giving it, knowing it might cost us a close friend, a loved family member, a position at work, maybe even our own citizenship? I mean, we're not at that point yet, but certainly Christians throughout the ages, for them to profess faith in Christ, to hold fast to the word of God, meant to lose everything, including their own lives. And we must daily remind ourselves of this important call to stand fast upon the word that God has given it. And Eli could have become angry. Samuel probably was unsure how he was going to respond. But I think we have indication that Eli knew the Lord, though he had sinned grievously. I mean, ultimately, God knows if Eli will be in glory one day or not. We're not sure exactly where he's at, but he seems to have an something of a knowledge of the Lord, and he responds with what I believe is humility. He says, Samuel, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli was not going to deny his own guilt. He was not going to excuse himself. He was not going to justify himself. He doesn't even ask Samuel to try and intercede for him. But he understands that God's word has been given and that it will not be changed. And so Samuel is established as a prophet. He has delivered his first prophecy. He now knows the Lord. And we're told in verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. You might be wondering, how tall is this guy by now? He's grown and he's grown and he's grown. Samuel's got to be around seven feet tall by now. But uh, the the idea is not just a, a physical maturing, but a spiritual maturing, a spiritual growing. And this wonderful statement, which I pray would be true of, of each one of us, but especially as I labor in preaching and teaching uh, What a wonderful statement. And the the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. God established this young man as a herald of the truth, as a proclaimer of God's word. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that is to say from north to south, knew that Samuel was being established. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And this is sort of a bookend 
to this section. We began with uh, rare words from the Lord, from infrequent visions. Now we have a vision of God again at Shiloh and the word going forth to the people of God. Light coming into the darkness. And one of the slogans used during the Reformation was the Latin phrase post tenebras lux, which means after darkness light. And it's as though through young Samuel, God brings a bright light again into the darkened nation of Israel. And his pattern is to do this again and again throughout history, to bring the light of his word to his people, that his glory might be revealed, that the bondage of sin and death would be cast off and men would come again to God, their creator. And we see this most clearly, the same picture in the coming of Christ, where we read, in him was the life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 4 and 5. And so let us not despair at the darkness that grows black around us in our own culture or in the world. Or maybe we see even darkness at times in our own souls, our own sins and our own weaknesses that we battle and it may cause us to want to despair. But we can remind ourselves that God is God of the day. After darkness, light. He delights to bring light into the darkness if we will be a people humble and ready to receive. And may we seek to know Christ more and more through his word. That, that, that we might be, like Samuel, a pure channel of truth to a dying world. A world enslaved by enemies on every side. May we draw near to God. Commit ourselves to the truth, to the word. That it might be said of us. Their, their words did not fall to the ground. So much of what we listen to today, the news, it's just, it's just like leaves in the, in the late fall, crumbling to the ground in meaninglessness. So many words piling up. But may we be a people who speak truth and that God would use it. And if you're here this morning and you say, well, I'm not sure that I do know God. I mean, I know things about God. I I, I know things about him that I, I believe to be true, but do I truly know him? Have I actually experienced the the peace that passes understanding? Have I experienced the forgiveness of my soul, a a true love for God? Do I have a a desire to, to seek Him? And if not, then I urge you to settle that matter, to, to call out to the Lord. Even as you are here today, come to a brother or sister and and, and, and so many would be happy to talk with you, to go through the scripture, to help you understand what it means to know God. We're told that, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so come to the word and as you read, pray, God, open my eyes, reveal yourself to me. Don't simply go through religious motions while not knowing the Lord. For Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we have no excuse not to come unto Christ.
for he is ready to receive all who will humbly come to him. Let's pray, and we will close there. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, realize that as a people, we have so many times wandered off into the darkness of our own wisdom, Lord, of our own planning and scheming. And Lord, so many times you could have simply let us go further and further into the darkness until there was no way back, Lord, until we were so far gone that we were utterly destroyed. And yet you have preserved us all of these years, purposing to rescue a people out, Lord, even identifying with us in the coming of Christ, the word made flesh that he might show forth the, the perfect man, obedient to all of your laws, perfect in all of his ways, and then offering up his very life upon the cross that we might be forgiven and raised on the third day as a new humanity that we may be joined to him. Even as we sang our living head, Christ, no longer Adam, but Christ the Lord. Help us to live, Lord, lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to seek after Christ, to truly know you. Lord, give us discernment. I pray that not one person here is self-deceived, thinking they have encountered the living God when in fact they have not. I pray that, that you would reveal yourself to each one, even as you called into the darkness to young Samuel. God, would you please call forth to the lost souls of each one here. And Lord, to many in this community and beyond, in the peace country and province, Lord, that we might see a day of not greater debauchery and and wickedness but lord may we see a day of revival of light breaking into many communities and churches and homes and transformation lord we we long for this and pray that we may be such a people that you use to bring this about and i ask this all now in jesus name amen Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.